America's Endgame with Dr. Alan Sabrosky right here, right now on VT Radio. Let's go with host Johnny Punish. Okay, we're back on VT Radio with the great Dr. Alan Sabrosky. Alan, are you out there somewhere hiding out uh, in, uh, where are you, in Michigan somewhere, in some farm in Pennsylvania? Where are you down? At this point, I'm in western Pennsylvania, consorting with groundhogs, bears, and the, the bird that flew across my kitchen table this morning. <laughs> yeah, watch out for those birds. Now, I, I understand you were uh, in Michigan last week. Uh, you had a huge talk uh, at a business group in Lansing, uh, an hour conversation, and of course, a Q&A. A lot of things happened at that Michigan. Can you give us an update and tell us what actually happened over there? Well, the, it wasn't so much a huge group as a good group. It was probably about 80 or so people. Um, and it went on for about, I guess, two, two and a half hours, including the, the talk and the Q&A. Very good, very interesting group, very active group. We continued discussion afterwards. The topic was America's Endgame. And I picked up on some of the things that you and I and Kat McGuire and Helen Bayiskis touched on last week which we had our panel, I mean, the night before I gave my talk. And it was basically looking at the situation in which the United States finds itself, uh, which is from dismal to pathetic. And I, I suspect the greatest, the greatest critique of it, <laughs> there were two of them, I think. One is that we've got all the guns in the world. We have more guns than most armies that have. We're the most heavily armed civilian population in the history of the world, and we've got no guts. If if the people back in 1775 at Lexington Green and Concord Bridge had had the same guts as Americans today who like to prance around with their uniforms and weapons and show, talking about how big they are and how good they are, they would have packed up the weapons for the British to take away and even given them the wagons to do it. There's no question at all about that. We've got, we've got the guns. We don't have any guts. Well, it's different, second, different days, different times, right? I mean, it's completely different now, right? It's, it's, it's different days, different times, but it's more than that. There has been, uh, I'm not sure whether it's an emasculation of American society and American culture and Western European culture too, uh, or a feminization of the men in America and in in Western Europe. I mean, it's very clear that most American men, most, not all, not by any means all, but most American men, a majority of, let's say a majority of American men are like a majority of men in Europe that react the way that women would have 50 or 60 years ago. That's how they're looking at it. That's, a, and it's very, it's very clear. Is that on the college campuses? You're seeing that, that, that shift, oh, that change? It was, I didn't get a good chance to look at Michigan State University. That you know, Lansing, Michigan, where this was, well, it was held in Okemos, Michigan, which is a uh, a suburb of Lansing, state capital. It's where I grew up. Michigan State University is about a mile away from the from Okemos, where I gave the talk. Didn't get a good chance to see that, but I mentioned to the people when I got there that the half hour or so that we were on the University of Michigan campus, going through it. Uh, I now understand what soy boy means. What does that mean? I haven't even heard that before. Uh, basically, basically, weak men, physically oh, weak men. Okay. And I, I was just astonished. It was 
I hadn't been back there in 40 years. So it was not something that I got used to over time. But I looked out and just watching the students as we, this bus was going through and waiting for a while to get discharged passengers and to get some new passengers on. The women were, were compared to the men strong. They were walking with very determined pace. Most of them, not all of them, not nothing is all, okay? But walking in a very determined fashion. And so many of the men were either thin or fat and had their phones in their faces. And that may be, that may be a generational thing, but physically the difference was dramatic. Difference was really dramatic. I don't know about Michigan State. I wasn't there, but I came back, went back to Michigan after the talk. And I'll tell you a little bit about the University of Michigan on that. But that was very clear. And I, I talked about the, the emasculation of, of, of the West, really. And the United States, I don't know if it's more advanced or less advanced in that sense than Europe, but they're all there. The, the only ones in, in the West, and this is really ironic, uh, John, because you know, I spent most of my adult life either in the Marines or in various, uh, private and, and governmental agencies opposing communism, opposing Russia. That was, that was the basic thing that I grew up with in the, in the forties and fifties, you know, the, the pits of the Cold War going off to the Marines fighting in Vietnam. But they, Russia, and a handful of former communist states in Eastern Europe are are going to be the last repositories of Western civilization and culture at this rate. I don't know if we can turn it around. And I mentioned that. But the second thing was a function, and, and it follows from the first, is that someone else put it much better than I can. And so I'm going to repeat it. I don't don't have his name. I didn't see his name, but what, what he wrote was that if the right, if, if the right or those on the right, this may not be a direct quote. This is a paraphrase. If those on the right had fought half as hard to save America as those on the left have fought to destroy it, we would have won long ago. Mm. Very strong and statement, Eric, I would say. And it is, and that, and that's, that's likely to be our epitaph. So I gave the talk and had, and had a, there was a dinner party after that. And it was, it was all very friendly. The nicest part of it is that the next day, some of them took me back and, uh, and actually that afternoon and the next day, we went back into Lansing where I grew up, went to elementary school, junior high and high school, went around the neighborhoods where I grew up, those two neighborhoods and the three schools. And the downtown area and those those neighborhoods I saw look remarkably well, like I remembered them after 60 years. Houses were freshly painted, standard middle-class, working-class neighborhoods. One of the schools was closed. I mean, no students. But the bad part of it, there are bad neighborhoods there, but the bad part of it was that the high school, uh, which – then had graduating classes of almost 500 students, you know, 10th, 11th, 12th grade. Now has both junior high and senior high, six grades, and has about the same enrollment as a failing school, a D school, as the graduating class had itself, as my graduating class had. 
So the neighborhoods are still, the neighborhoods, at least where I live, are still holding together. The downtown is a mixed bag. Some good areas, some very nice looking areas that look a lot better. Some slums, sort of a checkerboard thing that you find in a, in a lot of places. Uh, not as bad as Detroit or Flint, but not as good as it used to be. But the school, the public schools are increasingly black and increasingly failing. And that, that seems to be the pattern everywhere. Now, I don't know where the people living in those, na- those two neighborhoods that I looked at where I grew up are sending their, their kids. They can't be sending them to the public schools there. They may be sending them to parochial schools, private schools, or, and this may please you. I mean, it certainly pleased me. The people I met in Okemos, Michigan, just in that, just in that small town, homeschooling is big. Homeschooling is so big that for the first year, they had a senior prom for homeschoolers. They had almost 300 kids at it, seniors. Wow, okay. Just so in a small town. Yeah. That's that, you think good. that's from, you think that's because of the pandemic issue that uh, everybody got out of school type of thing? No, it's, it's discussed with the public schools and what, what the teachers unions are forcing into the public schools. They can't change it. The state won't change it. They describe Michigan now as a, the, the follow on to California. Uh, both houses of the legislature are now Democrat as well as the, the governorship and the, the officials courtesy of Wayne County and the corruption in Detroit. And there's no possibility of voting that out. None. They understand it. Since they can't change that, they can't do anything about the teachers' unions. They're going for homeschooling. And that apparently is spreading very rapidly out there. Now, when you were speaking at the uh, talk at Lansing, I I know you did an hour-long Q&A. You had some encounters over there. Can you tell me a little bit more about the encounters? Well, the only, the only encounter was actually an amusing one. I, uh, and I can't understand, can't remember why I did it, but at some point in my talk, I, I remarked that an Augustinian priest I used to know in Washington, one of my students, uh, referred to me to one of his fellow priests as a charming neo-pagan. Sounds like a name of a song, charming neo-pagan. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I, uh, and I told the, the group there, that I would only dispute the charming part. Okay. And that was sort of a flow in it, and everyone laughed. And that was exactly what it was intended to do, to sort right. of give out, you know, lighten the mood, And because we've been talking about fairly grim things in the uh, decline and fall of the United States and of the West in general. And so I, this, was just, this was intended to be humorous. Well, one of the people didn't take any humorous. Uh, so he got up and he was, it was, they, they would have a line of people coming up to the podium to ask questions. And I, I, I'd held and dealt with a number of questions. And then there was, I guess he was the second from the end. And he said, do you believe in Jesus? I mean, this was a, a subtle comment. Um, and is that a real so question said, or is that, does he really want to know? What would you, what you take it as? Well, you know, well, the thing of it is, I don't, I don't personally discuss or personally question anyone's faith in public. That's not an issue. In private, I can have discussions and arguments with it, but in public, I won't do it. And I didn't take it as a personal question. I took it as a historian. 
And I said, well, Jesus, if he existed, and he said, that's enough. And I said, no, you asked me the question, let me finish the answer. And so I discussed it in terms of not, not the divinity or origins of Jesus or anything like that or the impact on Christianity, but simply in terms of what I understood about Roman law and Roman customs. That in Roman law, in Roman law, crucifixion with nails was reserved for two types of people. One was slaves who rebelled or killed their masters. And that was highlighted by when Crassus defeated the, the Spartacus uprising. He took about 6,000 prisoners and he nailed them to crosses, literally nailed them to crosses all along the Appian Way into Rome and left them there to, and left them there to rot. I mean, that was it. And the Here's second, the example, as an example, right? Exactly, exactly. And the second was, uh, rarely used, but still there, a Roman citizen who, who committed treason. And for the rest of them, for all the rest of them, they tied them up. They tied them up and left them there because it took a long time to die. And they provided that excellent example to the population of what happens when you challenge Roman power, Roman authority. And I said, no, no, that doesn't mean that, that this wasn't wasn't violated. This, this, this procedure wasn't violated at times. I'm sure it was, but there had to be a really good reason for it. And there doesn't seem to be that kind of a reason. But the second thing is that Rome held its power over its empire with a remarkably small military, especially given the technology of the day. You know, they couldn't fly in a cohort of infantry. They had no planes. They couldn't do it. They couldn't, they couldn't wire back to Rome and ask for instructions. They, got, they had to rule. They had to rule right. with a relatively small, yeah, relatively small number of people. And they had to make it very clear, never, never show weakness to the subject peoples, not to the crowds, not to a religious group. And the Romans had a great deal of religious tolerance. Not to anyone. Don't show any weakness. Don't equivocate. Period. If what Pilate had done is as described in the Gospels, one of two things would have happened when word got back to Rome. If the emperor liked Pontius Pilate, he'd allow him to take poison or to open his veins in a hot bath. And if he didn't like him, he'd have him dragged back to Roman chains and thrown into the arena. But Pilate apparently shows up once about 15 years later mm -hmm. as governor of one of the Spanish provinces, which were the absolute plum because it was where a governor could enrich himself, really enrich himself. While Judea, sorry, it was, wasteland. It, it was the armpit of the empire. We're going to have let, yet, yeah, you know, yet another, yet another rebellion, yet another uprising. Oh no, not again. What do we get out of it? Nothing. I, what can, what can I get for, to, to bring back in terms of wealth? Nothing. You know, if I'm lucky, I'll get back with my life. But after that, he shows up as governor of one of the two Spanish provinces. So obviously, he didn't show weakness to the mob. He didn't show weakness to the Sanhedrin. He didn't show weakness to Herod. 
because he was alive and he was promoted. And I said, so, so, so your argument is that Jesus did, did, may not have existed because it may, at least the crucifixion may have not have existed. As I understand it, you know, I'm not, I'm not a biblical scholar. I don't read, I don't read Latin. I don't read Greek. I don't read Aramaic. Okay. So I'm, I'm dependent on people who translated who can read it. But the, as I understand it, the first of the gospels appeared around 80 AD. Like 50 years after the, after the, the events of the crucifixion. That's pushing it. But if, if Jesus did exist as a historical figure, as a rabbi, a teacher, as the Muslims say, as a holy man, a holy prophet, there could very easily have been. I don't know, I don't know why they came up with this mode of execution except to show to highlight his divinity, you know, that, that he died and was resurrected and that that provided some, some kind of hope. And it, who knows? It may be true. It may be correct. I, I don't know. I wasn't there. Um, I will tell you, not being entirely facetious, in fact, not being facetious at all, I, I would far, far more look forward to, to a Valhalla frolicking with Valkyries uh, than I would to sitting around playing with playing with harps or something like that. I, you know, frolicking with Valkyrie strikes me as a very nice idea. Right. Well, so did, did the gentleman take the answer well, or, or he got really upset? Well, well he didn't. You no, know, he wasn't upset. It was very polite. He was very polite. And I talked to him afterwards, and I and it, was, it was a very good conversation. Um, I talked to him afterward, and I said, you know, you actually took me back on this because. I took it as a historian, not as a personal question. And he said, I, he said, I meant it as a personal question. I said, I don't do those. And I took, then I told him what I said here. I mean, that's not a matter of public discussion. I did have a discussion on religion that evening at dinner. Um, and, um, with, uh, with a black bishop. Mm-hmm. Who was also very conservative, which is a very interesting combination. Uh, very conservative. Well, a lot of Africans are. Yeah, very conservative, very, very articulate, good, good person. Uh, very conservative religiously, and I mentioned to him, and he was he was not entirely comfortable with this. Something that a a Hindu colleague of mine. It mentioned to me back when he gave a lecture to my class at Georgetown in the early 80s. Um, he was from the uh, Yawaharu Nehru School of International Studies in International Studies or International Affairs in New Delhi. Uh, perfect English, slightly British accented, but perfect English. And he went out for dinner afterwards, and I, I said, you know, look, there's a number of fine Indian restaurants here. He said, no, he said, go to one where you're going to be comfortable. And I said, well, you know, and I, he's a complete vegetarian. And I said, well, I'm, I'll not order anything that would offend you. And he said, absolutely not. Said, Don't worry about that. And I said, really? I thought, I thought you're a strict vegetarian. He said, I am, but you aren't. So you don't have to, do, you don't have to do what I do. And I said, and I said, yeah, I said, doesn't that violate your faith? He said, absolutely not. I do remember this, what he said then verbatim. And it, this is, and it really impressed me. He said, God has 10,000 faces, all of them true. 
shown to different people in accordance with their need and their capacity to understand. I've never heard that before, but that sounds very, very cool. I know. And I had not heard it before or since, but I thought that that at that point, religious bigotry and prejudice die. That's the end of it. Yeah, right. And that's kind of where I'm at, you know, in terms of religion, you know, I'm definitely not a bigot, definitely not in that space, but uh, teach their own. That's kind of how I feel about it. It's a personal thing of faith. Some are Muslim, some are Christian, some are Jews, some are pagans, some are uh, Sikhs, and some are Hindus. Um, Which face are you talking about? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. exactly. Well, after that, I went back to uh, to Ann Arbor, the University of Michigan. Um, One of the people who was there, Andy Christensen, uh, posted a picture of the half dozen of us together. It was a Jewish professor, former professor at Michigan and his wife. Um, Andy Christensen and his Thai wife, um, a guy named Mark who was at the, uh, at the Lansing session and me. And we were at a Palestinian restaurant called the Jerusalem Garden. If you're ever in Ann Arbor, again, go there. It's really good food. Sounds Great fabulous. Food. A little, uh, kibbe and a little, uh, baba ganoush maybe? Yeah, yeah, you got it. <laughs> but I walked around. It, it was very cold. It was like in the thirties, cold wind blowing. And I walked around the Ann Arbor campus and went up to the political science department just briefly to do a, make a, a courtesy call. I think they were surprised I was still alive at my age, but yes, I'm still there. Okay. Might <laughs> okay, that's good that. news. Uh, but the campus was very interesting. It, it was really interesting. Unlike when I was there as a student in the 70s, and unlike the last time I saw it in the 80s, there were no political posters. None. Now, I wasn't over the whole campus, but the center of the campus is what they call a diag. It runs basically northwest to southeast, cuts campus in half. Uh, most of the major academic buildings, certainly in the social sciences, are in there. The libraries are on that. So, And that's where there was a place called the Fishbowl, which was in the, the building where the history and political science departments are, which is where all of the political groups would have their, their tables set up and the rest of that, nothing, nothing. And I is that a function people, of uh, is, is that a function of smartphones or people are having their discussions on TikTok as opposed to at the campus? I I don't I don't know I don't I don't think so. I asked I asked the people at lunch about that, and they said that there well there's two things. That's the basic decision was that there were two things. One is that now they don't, they don't bother trying to persuade or recruit or inform people. Uh, every few weeks they have a large march. Uh, sometimes they break up windows. Sometimes they just go through and make a lot of noise up and down the streets and block streets and things like that, which they didn't do in, in the seventies and eighties. Uh, they, they had, they would have riots. They had a couple of riots. They burned the ROTC building. But, you know, the March of the month wasn't really a, a thing. And the second is that you, you only put up posters and signs and tables and hand out, hand out literature when you're trying to recruit people. When you've won, you don't have to do that. And the sense is that they know they've won. Oh, okay. That's, that's interesting. Um, yeah, that's what I that, thought. Is, is that how you feel where the end game's going in the United States? Yeah. Barring, Interesting. There, there's, there's, there's a slight chance of reversing it. 
And that's going to be two, three articles down the line, probably sometime around Memorial Day. Uh, you know, a detailed assessment of what, what might be possible. Um, but I have very little hope. I think that, you know, to me, as, as catastrophic as it sounds, we have a choice between being ruthless now and saving our country and our culture, we being us in Western Europe, or be ruined forever. And I don't think that we or the Western Europeans in sufficient numbers have the capacity anymore to be ruthless enough. In the 50s and 60s, in the 50s and 60s, even in the 50s and 60s, had migrant boats swarmed into Western Europe, the navies would have sunk them. In the 50, in, in Eisenhower's years, he threw a million and a half illegals out of this country. National Guard, Army troops, police, out. Don't have, we don't have, can't do, yeah, can't do that now. I don't think it's there. And the, speaking, and speaking the, of that, I want to ask you about the Im- immigration, because right now the Biden administration is sending 1,500 troops down to the border to help with the Homeland Security uh, title, uh, the, the, the law uh, that's going to be changing here uh, that came from COVID, I believe it was. Uh, uh, title 14. Yeah, Title 14. And they, and they have a concern that there's going to be a, a, a bigger rush than there already is at the border uh, from Central Americans trying to get into the United States and uh, claim asylum or, or get jobs or, 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 or whatever they're going to do. Um, so get, tell me your perspective on this issue. Where do you stand on immigration into the United States? Is it a good thing, a bad thing? What should we be doing better? What's working? What's not working? What needs to be fixed? Well, what we're doing now clearly is not working. We've had, depending on the numbers you look at, in the two years and in four months of the Biden administration, we've had something between seven and 10 million illegals come in. Uh, they're very well funded. You know, we see these, 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 uh, convoys, these caravans of them, you know, 10 and 12 wide going back for miles. Those are for photo ops. Those are stricken for photo ops. They're not walking from Central America to the U.S. border that way, or they die in droves. Someone is providing with transportation, food, shelter, medical care, assistance. There are Mexican migrants showing up on the New England border, on the Canadian border with New England. Who got them up there? There are Central African, there are Central African and Guatemalan immigrants, migrants as you call them, in Mississippi, I've seen them in Jackson, Mississippi, in the stores. Guatemalans are very different than people from El Salvador or Mexico. The, the Mayan influence is very strong. There are Africans there. There's no common border between Guatemala and Africa and the United States. It's certainly not Mississippi. They're being flown around the country by Homeland Security. What can we do about it? What, do you, what should be done? I mean, we haven't been able to pass... Uh, the United States has not been able to pass any significant immigration reform at all since I believe Reagan's time. Is that about right? Did I get that yeah, right? Is it Reagan? Right. Yeah. Talk to me yeah. about that. Is, what's well, wrong? The, the, Why is this happening? The, 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 it's happening because Biden, the Biden administration, I'm not going to say Biden, but I don't think Biden knows which, 
how to use a toilet and he got, unless he gets assistance. <laughs> okay. but, the, but the Biden administration wants them. They want this. It's, they, they understand this, that this is being done to solidify the Democrat party's hold on political power, period. The damage it does to the country is acceptable to them if they can consolidate their power. At this point, um, California is, is obviously one of the most blue states in the country. It's gone from about 90%, 94%, 90% 90%-94% white in the 1950s to 34%. Texas is about 40%. It's going to flip blue like most of its cities are in the next couple of years. That's the largest red state out there. With that one plus California, that's effectively the game, plus the northern states. They see this as, as a good, they being the Democrats. And the people who are coming in, they understand the concept of Patron. The Democrat Party is their Patron. And they know that in exchange for a free ride, which is what they're getting into this country when they get here, more than half who come in are on welfare right from the start. But when they come in, no matter what it is, they're getting a free ride and they understand their responsibility is to vote and support the party who brought them here. That is the end of America. Do you think there's any possibility of taking America and stop stop investing money at, in Ukraine and invest money uh, into uh, building uh, investment possibilities in, in Guatemala and Nicaragua, you know, doing a Marshall Plan, so to speak, so that these people just don't want to come to the United States. They just don't have a need. Is that, is that well, a possibility or is it too late? It's not, it's not so much a need. They're being recruited, just like they're being recruited in Africa, to go in, in Africa and the Middle East, to go into Western Europe. And the same groups, the same Jewish-dominated groups in the United States are pushing this, the same NGOs as are pushing them into Europe. They're recruiting them for exactly the same purposes. Um, no, it, it doesn't matter what we would like to do with the money that's now going to Ukraine. Forget the fact that Israel wants it. Therefore, both the House and the Senate want the money to continue going to Ukraine, except for a few people who are pulling against the traces. Anything, no matter what the House does. I mean, the House can pass anything it wants. The Senate won't. And even if on some issue, the, the shift in, in, in parties uh, for people like Sinema from Democrat to independent, if she actually did you're, you're vote. You're talking about Republican. Senator Sinema uh, from, independent from Arizona, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. You know, and there may, one or two other Democrats may do that. Even if they did, and something managed to slip through the Senate with a very, with one or two votes. Neither House will have the two thirds majority that they would need to override a presidential veto, which they would get. The money will continue to be spent as it was determined in the first two years of the Biden administration. The Republicans can embarrass people. They can hold hearings. They can make them squirm. They can nail them to a wall. They can pass legislation, usually on a straight party line vote, but they can't do anything with it. They're just grandstanding and they know it. They have got to know it. 
They're grants. It's mostly grandstanding, but they're showing their constituents they are doing what they can. Well, what they can is nothing. There's never going to be another free election in this country. The Democrats stole 2018. They stole 2020. A really good documentary that Dinesh D'Souza and True the Vote did on 2000 Mules didn't impact anything in the country, except it did show the Democrats where they had to clean up their act to do it even more smoothly in 2022, which they did. And when they were called out for it, like Carrie Lake did in Arizona, you know, here's, here's 400,000 votes in Maricopa County. Why weren't they counted? The courts won't either wouldn't hear it or threw it out. So, so your position is you're cynical right now. You don't believe there's much hope for a, a better future of America. You think this is where the end game's going. Is that, am I getting that right from you? I think it's largely the case. The, the, there are a couple of possibilities of, of something happening that would actually galvanize people, at least some people, to resist. Um, a replay of 2020 that spilled out of the cities into the suburbs and started with a lot of people being killed and raped. That might be enough to get people off their butts and say enough. And if that started anywhere, it will spread everywhere. You, Here, you know, the way I see it is a, uh... I see it in 2016, they elected Trump, uh, Americans elected Trump, uh, in the hope that he would be the savior uh, to change the government. And he said, I, I bribed the Democrats, I bribed the Republicans, this whole thing's corrupt. So he was saying all that and speaking, you know, speaking to the choir, people were listening, right? But it turns out, you know, it, the way I see it is in 1948, uh, there was a guy named Mahatma Gandhi, right? Yeah, uh, Mohandas K. Gandhi. Uh, he was the father of, of modern India. He pushed the British out. He was the. He, it was 1776 for for India at that time, right? Mm -hmm. So he pushed the yeah. uh, the British uh, colonialist out. He he was a, a figure that will go down in history forever. Um, Trump could have been that, but it's not looking that way. Um, it didn't work out. It, it was. Do you think he was the wrong quote unquote Messiah? Uh, is there any? Buddy else that could lead uh, the country to change the government in a way that is more effective? What, what say you about that? He talked a good talk, but he didn't walk the walk. He really did. That, I mean, that's it. You know, you have, you have to look at both at, at the negative and the positive side of Trump. The negative part of it, from my perspective, is that he made his fortunes in the Jewish-dominated New York real estate and finance community and in the Jewish-dominated Hollywood community. He was as Zionist as anyone you're going to find. He, it wasn't a function of making America great again. You know, it was making Israel great again, or great for more, making Israel greater, I guess you'd say. Uh, he talked a good talk, though. I The, the critical, you know, I, I've said this to, to a number of people and in a number of places, and gotten a lot of lot of uh, blowback from it, but you know the, the decisive time for him was when he came into office that first year. He had a Republican majority in both houses. He did. It might, it might not be, have been. <coughs> excuse me. A lot of them might have been rhinos, but he had a Republican majority. 
He did. The That's one right. thing that he had to do, the one thing that he had to do, and he could have done, no matter what the courts said, no matter what state governors said, with 1% of the defense budget, he could have built a wall across the entire southern border of the United States, from the Pacific to the Gulf, given the Coast Guard a couple of dozen more cutters in the South, in the Pacific and in the Gulf, done triple the size of Border Patrol, any, all of that the first year, 2017, done. And at that point, the Democrats would have taken a look, and they never have done anything in 2018. And the other point that he, they where he failed was 2020. Those six months of rioting. He did nothing. He had the power. He had the constitutional responsibility. He had the statutory authority in the Insurrection Act. He could easily, he could, with a lot of grief from the media, but the media were giving him grief anyway, 24-7. You can only hate a person 100%. After that, it doesn't matter. I mean, really, I mean, that was it, except for a couple of people on Fox. He got grief from everyone all the time. His press secretary got grief from everyone all the time. So, okay, so they hate me. Let they hate me a little bit more. Federalize the National Guards. He's got the authority to do that. Send U.S. Marshals to arrest some of the most recalcitrant Democrat governors and mayors. I think that love Cuba. The, the, the view from Guantanamo Bay is really great. I've seen it. It'd be nice that they'd enjoy it. And use federal troops if necessary to restore order in the cities with live ammunition and the authority to use deadly force and do it. You know, as far as I can tell, not one rioter in six months was killed or even wounded by police or National Guard. Not one. The only ones that were hit were that one 17-year-old kid that went into Wisconsin, killed two and wounded one. Three Jews, by the way. How's that for a coincidence? Just coincidence. Uh, Antifa types or BLM types or both, whichever you consider it. But no one else. They were in Democrat-controlled cities except for two cities. And all of the other hundreds were Democrat-run in Democrat-controlled states. And nothing was done except a lot of looting, a lot of arson, a lot of mayhem, and about 60, 70 people murdered. And here and we are. We're going to have, we're going to have now the nursing home debates. I call them, uh, yeah. you know, from, uh, from, uh, Biden versus Trump again, looks like, I mean, it doesn't seem to be anything else. Is that right? <laughs> Live from the nursing home, you know, <laughs> right? Well, <laughs> right? You have to have a nursing home in a basement. Right, right. It's going to be very exciting. I don't think anybody wants to see this. Uh, I know I don't, and, and a lot of people don't want to see this anymore. Um, what say you about it? I mean, this is where we're going. It, it, it doesn't, you know, it I guess. It, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. As I said, I don't think there's ever going to be a free election again. At this point, um, there there is no Republican candidate, and that includes DeSantis, of course, there's no Republican candidate and no Democrat candidate who isn't completely in APAC's pocket. That's it. I mean, you know, what they want, they're going to get. I you think know, you can't may, be president. May, and if you're not in APAC's pocket, you're not going to be president of the United States. That's the end of that story. If you're not in APAC's pocket, I don't think you can be governor of too many states. Right. 
Yeah, that's the way it's going. So on that note, um, you know, it's uh, I want to thank you for being on VT Radio. Uh, today is my wife's birthday. So uh, we got the balloons out. We got the cake going in about 15, 20 minutes. So I'm going to go do that. And, and the uh, Learjet is, lear is coming from me, right? So I can join. Them. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> OK. And uh, t- t- tell us what's going on uh, for you this week. So our, our readers and listeners know what's happening and what they expect, expect from you. Okay. Well, I had intended to get an article off to you last week. I didn't because I left my the charger for my laptop. <laughs> this is one of those things. I packed at 2 a.m. in the morning, and I had three boxes, two shaving kits, and one with my charger for my phone and my my laptop. And I, I thought you were going to say the, the bird took it away. Yep. <laughs> the flying the bird. bird. <laughs> I ended I ended up in uh, in Michigan with uh, with two shaving kits and no chargers. But there I'm going to be sending an article to you tomorrow uh, on weaponizing anti-Semitism. Okay. Uh, got a couple more shortly after that. And then the final one is the third piece is going to be America's Endgame. This week, uh, got a couple of clinics. Good flying back to Mississippi on Wednesday. Uh, okay. And the first thing I'm going to do is get some catfish and barbecue, which they don't have up in Pennsylvania. They think right, that a right. catfish is a swimming cat. <laughs> oh, <laughs> not quite. <laughs> well, well, on that just, note, I'll leave you there about the catfish. Uh, again, I want to thank you again for being on VT Radio and sharing your thoughts with all our listeners and readers around the world. Uh, for everybody on VT, don't forget to get your VT cup on VT. It's uh, available. We don't make any money on this, but so we, you get it at cost. We're just sharing the love. But if you do like the show, please reach out and support VT. Um, today I had to uh, move the servers a little bit around because I'm trying to keep the cost low and keep the quality high. It's a lot of work on this end. Uh, if you can donate a one-time donation, if you can afford it, great. If you can't, don't worry about it. But if you can, hey, join our membership. It's $8 a month. It really, really helps out a lot because we, you know we're banned by all the mainstream uh, uh, advertisers and it's difficult to get that. I'm always doing workarounds and trying to figure it out, but it, it's a job, man. It's a job to get around these guys, you know? Yeah. So I'd appreciate if you guys support that. And uh, Dr. Alan Sabrowski, again, thank you so much for being on VT Radio. My pleasure, John. You take care of yourself. If you enjoyed this presentation, hit the like button now. Also, share it with your friends. And don't forget to subscribe so that you don't miss an episode. VT approves this message.